Did you just say producers throwing money at the solution is not the problem? I think he did, actually. I, that's what I, I heard. <laughs> Radio Drome. I'm sick of wasting my Thursday nights with Cecil Trachtenberg. Me too. Especially with the Marquis de Suede. He just suades everything up so much. That's why I'm here. Well, would you like to sell people some suede as well as some adamandeve.com? You go to, to marquisdesuede.com. <laughs> also known as adamandeve.com. You go to adamandeve.com. Yeah, because you know what? I haven't checked. Marquisdesuede.com might be something pretty nasty. I don't know. I don't know either. I have a feeling it might be. If you go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, you'll get 50% off a single item, three free DVDs, free shipping in the U.S., and a free mystery gift for DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, tonight's topic, we're going to talk about disaster movies. Not disaster movies, movies that are disasters. Because 47 Ronin opened this week, I, I know Alex and I have not seen it yet, so we're not reviewing the movie itself. Cecil, have you seen 47 Ronin yet? I have not seen it, but my wife actually really wants to see it, so we'll probably be seeing it soon, because I know the disaster. And, and the reason that we're picking this is... Without even seeing it, this film is a disaster. This film was finished and set for release in December of 2012. It came out late December 2013 after massive reshoots and extra $70 million were thrown into it. Keanu Reeves was brought back for whatever... Okay, this is not a Keanu Reeves movie. Brad Jones put it perfectly. He was Pierre Kirby'd into this film. That, that this is like what Godfrey Ho would do. He shares no screen time with hardly any of the other cast, and it's clear from the reviews that I've read that he's all his stuff is shot separately. And, and, and a few behind-the-scenes things have confirmed that he was called to do almost all his stuff after principal photography was done. Oh, Pierre Kirby'd into the movie. I thought you meant he was Jack Kirby'd into the movie, that they just drew him in. With Keanu's performance, maybe? What what has to go wrong on a movie with a $200 million plus budget that it's delayed for an entire year and you basically rewrite and reshoot the movie to get it out? How bad do you f*** up the first cut of this? As time has proven with, with different movies where they've gone back and recut them and reshot them, a lot of times it's not the movie's fault. The movie that came together now i'm not saying this in in the case of 47 ronin i haven't seen it yet so i can't say if it's good or bad i also haven't seen you know the original cut there's a i would be going out on the i think that the original cut probably isn't as bad it's one of those things where the studio couldn't maybe figure out a marketing angle on it they there aren't any american stars in it until they threw there in shouldn't be Keanu reeves well, right. That's what I'm saying. There shouldn't be this. Is, you know, this is for lack of a better thing is kind of a crouching tiger, hidden dragon kind of thing is what it looks like to me. 
and then they shoehorned in Keanu Reeves. Made me think a little bit of um, what was the one, The Last Samurai with uh, Tom Cruise? Yes. Was that? I'm like, oh, this looks like a really cool. The hell's Tom Cruise doing in this? It's it always strikes me as odd where they do feel the need to just. Well, you know, uh, this is going along really good, but we need to throw an American into this movie. And it's like, no, I really do wonder, like, what could the original version be? It probably is a good movie. More than likely, the version that has Keanu shoehorned in there is going to be a disjointed mess because it initially wasn't supposed to have him in there. That's kind of what happens when you slapdash a movie together like that. I, I think that it. it it probably is a case of the movie just not being that bad. Just the studio completely shit themselves because they spent $200 million on a movie and they didn't have any major stars attached. You know, maybe the original was actually perfect, but then some studio heads are like, well, test audience is this and, oh, well, you know, cats watch our movies too, so maybe we should put some mice in there or something. And you it's just a Scrooge, huh? Yep. But that's pretty accurate. And, and this, without having seen the movie, I've seen these clips. What about when they deceptively over-affect the trailer to fool you? For instance, one of the major complaints about the movie is how awful the CGI looks. Now, go back and watch the trailer. Then watch some of the EPK stuff, the electronic press kit stuff that's out there for the movie. And you'll see the di- major difference between the trailer clips and the clips from the EPK, which are from the actual movie... How does the actual movie clips look worse, have worse effects than the trailer? Because when you know you've got a stinker on your hands, you try to sell the movie. So you spend more money rendering the, rendering the CGI in the trailer and don't bother doing it in the movie. A, a perfect example is Ang Lee's Hulk. Go look at how great those radioactive Hulk dogs look in the trailer. And then how god-awful, almost almost sci-fi channel wireframes they look in the film. That is deceptive. When you know you've got a bomb on your hands, you make the trailer look as amazing as possible because at that point, we've already got your money. You know, if you can make a great trailer, people will come and see it. You know, even if you got to put stuff in the trailer that's not in the movie, like Paranormal Activity 3, that trailer is so not the movie at all. There's a lot of times that they make the trailer when they're halfway through with the movie, so they do special CGI for the trailer, and then they go and finish the movie. So a lot of times it's not going to match up at all. Things happen. But yet when the trailer effects look better than the final effects, you kind of f***ed up, didn't you, son? Sometimes they're done through different companies. And the other thing, too, is a lot of times what they'll do is they'll get a sequence that they want to show in the trailer. The reason why the CGI will be better in the trailer is because they maybe have three seconds of something to render to kind of show, like, holy shit, this is amazing, look at this. But then in the actual movie, the sequence might be minutes long. So they have to spend all that much more time rendering, all that much more time animating and doing all this stuff, and consequently costing more money and making it look better. So whereas the trailer, they just have to show this for just a brief little period of time, that they might be able to squeeze this out and make it look amazing. But in the actual movie, it's just you know, it would it would just be impossible to do. So it's it's a way of basically lying to Isn't the Isn't that kind of bait and switch? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, in the movie studios have been continually getting away with it, and they will continue to get away with it. I mean, this was 
a movie where you see the trailer and you're sold one movie and then you go and you watch the movie and you realize it's totally not that movie. Or like, or like something like uh, the video game Aliens Colonial Marines. For whatever reason, the playable demo is less buggy and more rendered than the actual game. How does that happen? Well, that was just a whole big... There, God, we could probably do a whole show on that where... Because it was originally supposed to be headed by um, the guys who did... Uh, Gearbox. Gearbox, thank you. Totally. Because that's not what we were going to talk about tonight, so my brain's not there. But yeah, Gearbox was doing it, and then they passed it off to uh, to Time Sega, game. and then they kind of sublet it, and it just... Uh, if you watch like the the old footage, like it was really good, and then the actual gameplay, none of the lighting effects were there, and it wasn't rendered as well. And but but anyway, whole not levels were missing. Whole levels were missing. Well, they also kind of rushed that out the door, and they openly admitted that uh, they kind of screwed the pooch on that one. But when you when you get these movies that are just behind the scenes disasters, they as the studio seems to just keep thinking, throw money at it, and it'll get better. Like Alien Three. Alien 3, the script that you see in the movie was written by 17 different writers. How do you expect to have any sense of a coherent story when you have 17 different people writing the script? You don't. You can't. Anything beyond 2 starts to get iffy. Because with, like, 17, with Alien that's, 3... That's a mess. That's like Frankenscript there. Yeah, because every time they got into trouble with like, okay, this last draft there's a plot hole, they bring in another writer, and then he would cre- he would fill that plot hole, which creates another plot hole. So they bring in another writer. It has seven credited writers and ten uncredited polishes on that piece of crap that was Alien Three. There's no way that was ever going to turn out good with seventeen writers. No, there's no way it will ever come out good. I mean, what they need to do is, oh, there's a plot hole here. Ask the original writer to fix their own plot hole, not hire another person. Too many cooks spoil the broth is an apt phrase. The problem is, is that they'll buy the script. They like it. They, they're like, okay, this is really good. We're going to green light this and go into production. And they, they green light it. They go into production. And then they start working on it. And then they're like, well, wait a minute, we have to change this. And then, like you said, they'll bring in another writer to fix it, film a little bit. And then they'll be like, oh, wait, now we need to fix this. It's like they're doing things ass backwards. They need to take a look at the script, look at the strong points, look if there's anything they need to change. And I understand that filmmaking is an organic thing. Sometimes parts don't work. Sometimes, you know, you may think this is really good, but it doesn't work. So sometimes what works be... on paper doesn't work in practice. Right. Certain things do need to be changed on the fly. I've been there when it happens. It's like this, holy crap, this whole thing isn't going to work. We just need to remove it completely. In, in cases like this, it's like they will fix things on the fly, but will make more problems. It's like if they would kind of start to do a little bit more pre-production instead of running headlong into production to try to get the film out because you already have a set date. Okay, the movie, we said it's going to be released on May 4th. We have to have it done by then. So they start rushing into it, and that creates so many problems. They need to spend just a little bit more time on pre-production and make sure that, okay, this script that we have here is about as rock solid as it can be for the time being. There's going to be things that can be changed, but as of currently, it's good. Instead of, ah, f*** it. We'll just change it, you know, if, if stuff doesn't work out. Fuck it! We'll do it live! <laughs> we'll do it live! Supernova. The 2000 release. I don't want to actually say the Walter Hill film, because it really isn't the Walter Hill film. 
you got Walter Walter Hill who shot most of the movie. The studio didn't quite like it, so they hired Jack Shoulder, a director I like, in their words, quote, substantial reshoots. Then he left the picture when he was unhappy with how it turned out. Then they handed it over to Francis Ford Coppola, who shot some new scenes and then took over the final edit of the film. How do you expect a coherent film like that? I think they get to a point where they just don't care. It's like, well, we have to finish this one way or another and get it out there. Look at, uh, you remember uh, Cursed from 2005, the uh, aptly named werewolf movie? It was originally, they wanted to bring Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson back, who was the team who put out Scream, which made New Line just tons of money. Kevin Williamson wrote this, you know, cool little... New Line? Uh, I, I thought Scream was Dimension. Dimension. My, yeah. my bad. Dimension. Okay. Made Dimension a ton of money. I actually put them on the map, if I'm not mistaken now. Anyway, I'm probably mistaken. I don't know what I'm talking about tonight. But Cursed, they shot the entire thing. It was done. The end... The studio took it and looked at it and they did uh, test audiences and they didn't like it. And so they went and rewrote and reshot about 70% of the film. They brought back a good bunch of actors. They added a whole bunch of different actors. And there were characters that was like, okay, well, in they were talking to like Shan Elizabeth. She's like, okay, well, in the original version of the movie, I was dating this guy. But now in this version of the movie, he's my brother and I'm dating this guy. And I mean, they changed massive chunks of the film. And apparently the original version of the film does exist. It's finished. But the studio doesn't want ever that to get out. They want, you know, the, what was released, the complete ridiculous mishmash of a film that uh, just infuriated everyone. It was it was just ridiculous the fact that they were able to take a, a completed film and reshoot seventy percent of it. That it's ridiculous. It's absolutely like unheard of. And the simple it's fact not that unheard they, of. It's happened well, okay, a lot. It's not unheard of, but I mean it's it's infuriating. I think is the word. But the fact that they won't put both versions on the DVD is simply because they're afraid that okay, crap. What if the original version? is really good and people like that. Well, then, you know, that'll be... They did uh, that with the two Exorcist prequels. Both sucked, I thought, but I, well, at both least got they released. put them both out. Well, yeah. both got released separately. I mean, was it the one was Rennie Harlan and the other, the other one, one was, was Paul Schrader. Was Paul Schrader. And the one was more of an action movie and the other one was more of a horror movie. So, but I mean, that's something that's awesome. I, I think, like, not that the movies are good, but the simple fact that you have two movies from two different directors that are the same script just you can look at how each one is you know does it differently and that's something that you know can be studied i believe test audiences are probably the worst idea ever i mean granted there have been a rarity of movies that are improved based final on final destination test yeah I don't know. why what was the original for final destination before test audiences the original ending had devin schwala getting killed protecting Ellie Larder, and then you find out because they slept together earlier in the film that she's pregnant and his ghost moves through her and is protecting her from and the baby from death. Test audiences hated that. So they went with the, screw it, kill everybody in Paris ending, which yeah. which I liked a lot better, honestly. That's better, it but... was pretty awesome. As I said, you, the, you have the rarity of a movie that's improved by test audiences. And honestly, a test audience is nothing more than just a third party to look at the movie. 
You know, if I made but something, I would obviously made up of the worst possible people to look at your movie. Random people in a mall. If you're trying to sell a film like Videodrome or Blade Runner, not the right audience for that. If you're trying to sell a film like Fast and the Furious, yeah, fine. I got surveyed at a mall once. Would you like to take a survey? When I was like 13, 14 years old about a movie and they're showing me the poster and like, what do you think of this poster? What do you think the movie's about? It ended up being the movie Assassins, but that's not what they were telling me at the time. A director who is just a train wreck on every single thing he touches. Even if the final product might turn out okay, the director is the train wreck, such as Michael Cimino. Michael Cimino, I don't understand how the man kept getting work. He made The Deer Hunter, which was a train wreck of a behind-the-scenes, but turned out to be a great film. So everyone kind of overlooked it. Okay. Then he went off to make Heaven's Gate, which was a train wreck both in execution and in production. All right. Then... He goes and does the same thing in Year of the Dragon, which turns out to be a train wreck in both production and execution. And then again with The Sicilian. Why don't the studios re realize Michael Cimino is a disaster? Stop giving him money! I think that they still thought he had another Deer Hunter in him, that, that they just saw the final product of Deer Hunter and went, hey, this is a great movie, we should get this guy. His next three films after The Deer Hunter resulted in lawsuits! How yeah. is he worth hiring? Because at the time they thought having his name on it would... Uh, hey, from the director of The Deer Hunter, people see this regardless of what it is. Uh, I, I am in agreement with you. I don't understand. Hollywood is so fickle and weird. Like, you'll have something like that. I think the term you want is incestuous. Well, incestuous, yes, but here's something where I'm going to point out. I don't understand how you have somebody like Chimino who will just continuously be a disaster on set. The actors and actresses have a hard time working with him. He's constantly just delivering a subpar product, and they keep giving him work. Okay, isn't that Brett Ratner's entire career? No, I see. I'm kind of a I'm kind of a mix on Brett Ratner because the thing is, he might have. But he is kind of a modern day Michael Chimino. His films yep. always suck. They're always train wrecks. He always alienates all the actors that he works with and the studio he worked for. No, because his movies have all been incredibly financially successful. I don't know. Doesn't well, mean they're good. That doesn't mean they're good. But in the studio's eyes, that means that he's bankable and he's marketable and he's turning them a profit. Whereas Chimino is making these disasters that end up not really making as much money as the studio put out for. And yet they continuously give him work. Ratner continued to make movies that were financially successful. And like it or not, Rush Hour 1, 2, and because he did, he did all three of them, if I'm not mistaken. All three of them were really big money makers. The only one I liked was two. I thought one and three were horrendous, and I love Jackie Chan, but uh, but that's getting off. So uh, Ratner, I'm kind of a mixed bag on him. I don't really have that big of an issue. I, I think that uh, there are other directors out there that are far, far worse and just make much bigger headaches. What I was going to bring up was somebody like Fred Decker, who did Night of the Creeps, which is a great movie Indeed. and he did uh monster, monster squad, squad which is a phenomenal movie which is a phenomenal movie and then the studio dropped robocop 3 in his lap and then proceeded to just screw him at every turn they could and finally put out this mishmash piece of garbage 
And then what do they do? They excommunicate him from freaking Hollywood. And it's like for something that wasn't even his fault, you know, it's like they forced him more or less to do this film and then screwed him over because of it. And it, so in the entire thing was not his fault. And yet they removed him from the system. Whereas you have other directors who continuously put out crap that underperforms and they keep getting work. But then look at someone like Chimino who creates his own problems and then blames the studio for taking away, quote, his creative vision. For instance, The Sicilian, which technically, even though the movie might not be, The Sicilian is a spinoff of The Godfather. The book that The Sicilian is based on is canonically connected to The Godfather, but because The Godfather franchise and The Sicilian film were from different studios, they couldn't have any mentions. But the Corleones are in both books. Michael Cimino proved that Heaven's Gate was not a fluke with the behind-the-scenes disaster. He insisted on shooting the entire movie in Sicily. Okay, that's very expensive, but if you want authenticity, you go for that. Okay. He would fly over every day American food to Sicily for the crew. That's a big chunk of the budget right there. Then he insisted. Dino De Laurentiis fought him on this every step of the way. He insisted that Christopher Lambert play the titular Sicilian. You know, that French actor that even by his own admission cannot do an Italian accent for shit. So you've got this Sicilian character that's a pure-blood Sicilian speaking with a distinctly French accent. Right there you're going to have issues with credibility. But then comes the disaster of Cimino. He signed the contract before a single frame of film was shot that he had final cut on the film as long as it was under 120 minutes. He turned in a 150-minute film and said, I cannot cut it anymore. It's already been cut to the bone, and he wasn't even happy with that. So he said, 20th Century Fox, you will release this. They said, no, we won't. You need to cut another half hour out. He said, no, I won't do it. You can't make me. They held up the contract. Yes, we will. So what he did was, all right, and remember, he sees him, 20th Century Fox, as the villain here for enforcing the contract he willingly signed. He cut all the action scenes out of the film to the point of, at one point, the wedding party that gets attacked, it just cuts to them getting married to everyone at the hospital dying. And he did that for the entire film, and the film came in at just under 90 minutes, so he said, Release the fucking thing! There! It's under two hours now! Yeah, uh, it's just... Uh... I don't know. It's it's a it's a spiteful thing. Like with um with Devil Times Five, where the uh, Sean McGregor, the director, got into frequent arguments with the producer and got to the point of where they were on set and he would just start tearing pages out of the script and be like, no, nope, not going to film this today, no. Nope. And I mean, it, it's this weird thing with certain directors where they just I I don't know if it's they lose their mind or I if they're already kind of nutsy. I think ego. it's ego because like in the Chimino thing with the, with the Sicilian, he knew he had to deliver an under two hour film. And then mm-hmm. he made the studio out to be the villain that he actually gave an interview where he said they're taking away his artistic vision. No, well, you agreed to this. Well, I mean, th- to be fair, uh, there, but if you there is you have to shoot a two hour movie and you shoot a three hour movie and then go, they're not letting me do what I want. 
It's it's a weird thing because I mean I will almost always side with the director over the producers because the directors are the ones with the vision and they're the ones that at the end of the day their name is going to be attached to the product and if the product sucks they're the ones that are going to suffer for it the producers are going to skate and they'll probably just write you know do it as a write off on their taxes in some cases cases like this where you've got a director who just has his head up his own ass and just thinks that you know this this is the way that the movie should be and we'll just not budge on it at all and uh, i mean i guess if it was something that would have come out today he might have been able to negotiate okay why don't we put the two-hour version out theatrically and then do the full director's cut and then we'll release that on dvd you know what the true irony of the sicilian thing was Remember how his 150-minute version was already cut to the bone? If you've ever seen that one, mm-hmm. it is so bloated. There are so many scenes that could be completely excised without hurting the story whatsoever. It was just pure ego on Chimino's part of him being pulling that Tarantino. The footage is just too good to not be seen. It's just ego. When I'm referring to Tarantino in this regard, it's for Death Proof. How on, the, on DVD he put the, the missing reel back in. Because, and I quote, the footage was just too good to not be seen. That's a man that's in love with himself. Okay, he signed a contract knowing he had to make a movie that was two hours. And he'd been working in Hollywood long enough to know that if you don't give the producers their way, it's going to be a fight every step of the way. But still, he chose to make a 150-minute movie. That is exactly like going into Taco Bell and saying, where's my fucking hamburger? Because you know that they don't have one. But you're going to go in and ask for it anyway? But then there are a lot of people in Hollywood over the Sicilian thing that side with Chimino. The studio should have just let him do what he wanted. He's the artist. He signed a contract. Now, contracts can be renegotiated. For instance, Boogie Nights. Paul Thomas Anderson had a contract to make Boogie Nights as a two-hour film. Once they saw the rough cut that was nearly three hours long, the studio said, you know what? This really does work as a a two-and-a-half-hour, two-hour-and-40-minute movie. Okay. We're not going to enforce this in the contract. As I said with the Sicilian, the director's cut is just bloated as hell. Yeah, that's probably why they didn't want to renegotiate. They're like, no, this this movie's shit. Make it two hours. You've got other films such as Blade Trinity. We all knew that Blade Trinity was a very troubled production, such as the nonstop face-off between writer-director David Goyer and Wesley Snipes to the point where the two of them couldn't even be on set together. Snipes wouldn't even show up unless, basically in the film, if you cannot see his face, that's Wesley Snipes' stunt double. He would only show up if you saw his face. How do you make a cohesive film like that? You don't. That's how. Or if you know going into this that this actor's going to be this way, so I have to change my strategy of how I'm going to make this movie to keep him on set. But the fact that they chose not to, well, they were asking for trouble. Well, the, the biggest problem was when Wesley Snipes signed on, it was going to be Wesley Snipes versus vampires in a post-apocalyptic Earth where they more or less have taken over. And he was one of the, you know, the, the last line of defense in, you know, the last few surviving humans. But then what the studio decided to do was, ah, screw that. But that was too dark. That was too dark and probably too complicated. Let's just fire the guy who did that, bring in the guy who did the original movie, and have it, uh, you know, Blade versus Dracula. He only wrote the original. David Gore only wrote the original movie. Well, he wrote the original. Well, I'm saying because he came back and wrote this and directed it. But they said, bring him back, do this one, 
have it Blade versus Dracula. Only Dracula is so powerful, he can walk around during the daytime. And oh yeah, let's shoehorn in these side characters so that we can kill Blade off at the end of the movie and do a spin-off series. I also want to say, I really like Dominic Purcell, but he was brutally miscast as Dracula. Oh, he was awful. He was so absolutely garbage in this movie. Just, yeah, he, I, I'm the same way. I think that, that he's, he's cool. I've seen him in a few things where I've, I've liked him. And I was just like, because this, I think, was the first thing I had seen him in that I, I was like, oh, God, this guy is the worst. I think the first thing I saw him in was the John Doe TV series. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's wow. Well, he definitely muscled up since then. But uh, I yeah. kind of lumped him in with like a Kellen Lutz where it's just like, oh, this guy is just a big, you know, muscular lunkhead who, who can't really act. But then I've seen other stuff and I'm like, oh, he was just really poorly directed. One of the one of the big ironies of this whole thing was that New Line said, said that that post-apocalyptic humans are blood farms for the vampires that rule the world now thing was too dark and audiences wouldn't side with that kind of a that kind of a universe then what happens three or four years later daybreakers comes out with that almost exact plot and is great daybreakers was phenomenal and sadly though not a lot of people saw it but i mean isn't daybreakers basically what blade 3 was supposed to be kind of i mean but daybreakers yeah, I, I get But, I mean, Daybreakers was kind of dialed. Like, it wasn't as much of an action movie, though. But, I mean, it, it had a very, it had the premise that was kind of on there. So, yeah, I guess the two are similar. But, day, yeah, Daybreakers, if you haven't seen Daybreakers, totally watch it. Absolutely worth it. Yeah, Daybreakers was one that came out and then it was gone and nobody ever talked about it. So, I assumed that it was a total piece of crap until I watched it. I'm like, this is an amazing movie. This Why is really good. And, and you yeah. know what? I really liked the plot twist at the end, too. Yeah, it's a good movie. They could have saved the Blade franchise, although at that point you could tell Snipes was kind of not caring anymore. But then what about movies that have tumultuous productions and turn out to be disasters until you see them properly, such as Once Upon a Time in America from Lyon? The theatrical cut? Absolute disaster on every level. And when you find out all the behind-the-scenes shenanigans that happened at that time, you, you kind of assume, okay, that's why. Then you see the director's cut, and you go, oh, he was able to overcome all that and make a damn great film. Studio just didn't want to release it. Yeah, I mean, again, why I say most of the time side with the director, because most of the time they're the ones that have the artistic vision, and they're going to try to pull the whole thing together. In the case of Once Upon a Time in America, the studio didn't have artistic reasons they had money the film was nearly three hours long they wanted it down to an hour and a half to double how many times they could show it in a theater and considering this was like what 83 84 a three-hour movie being released theatrically in america was almost unheard of at that point oh yeah it really wasn't until like braveheart and uh, titanic and them came along where they started saying oh you mean we can do a three-hour movie and it's still ridiculously profitable if the movie's good enough all right yeah it was a long time before we got movies of of that length that were uh being released theatrically uh, i know i've mentioned it here plenty of times but uh blair witch project 2 where you know studio took it and completely screwed it put it out of order and uh, i still think the theatrical cut like you can see the glimmers of goodness but then seeing it the way that it's supposed to be seen it's like oh this is the, the right movie. This The director was right all along. 
and the studio just decided to be idiots about it. Oh, well, that thing, that was like Leon's one American movie. <laughs> My point of view on that is if you're hiring a director because of their artistic vision and you want their artistic vision, then just let them do it. Let them do what they want. But if you're hiring a director because you just want their name, let them know up front and just, just pay them for the money for the name and then just make your own goddamn movie and don't even have the director there because that's just going to be a big fight the whole time. What What about something such as... American History X, where the director and the star are at are butting heads the entire film, and then you find out that the director actually gets to lose because the the studio is backing the star. American History X, to quote Roger Ebert, and it's a perfect quote: "American History X is the best movie any director ever tried to take their name off of, because that movie was dominated by Edward Norton. He was constantly fighting with writer director Tony Kay." He, got, he took the editing away from him. He took the promotions away from him. This was really Edward Norton's movie that Tony Kay just happened to write and direct. Ironically enough, Tony Kay didn't even want Edward Norton for the part. The film still turned out great, though. That is a great movie. On the other hand, what was Tony Kay's original vision for that movie? I've, his original vision, he said the work print that's out there on the bootleg circuit is... Uh, other than some temp music and some editing nonsense, is basically his director's cut. It's much more brutal. It cuts out, when I say humanizing, it, it cuts out some of the lighter humanizing things, such as the scene with Derek and the little black girl at the coffee shop. It cuts out those kind of things. It's told linearly, so like the scene with his racist firefighter dad is at the beginning of the movie instead of the end. The biggest change is... Danny narrates the entire movie instead of only the beginning and the end like he does in the theatrical cut, which really does give more insight into making characters like Ethan Suppley's character much more human and less of a kind of a caricature that he comes across in the film. Yeah, I'm going to side with Edward Norton on that. But then again, no, no, I'm just going to side with Edward Norton for the hell of it. I don't care if it makes me sound like I'm backpedaling over what I said earlier. American History X was good because of Edward Norton's changes. Shallow prick. The problem with getting actors a little too involved with the production, especially if they're if if they're a producer as well as an actor within the film, okay, fine. It's in their contract that they can kind of finagle and change things. But I think that uh, in the end, still you have to you have to go with the director. So while the version that did come out was really good that's the only version that everybody knows so we don't really have something to compare it to so it could very well be that the version that the director wanted is the superior one which you have oh and you're saying it's the better version i'm saying some parts are better some parts i like the theatrical version better some Mm -hmm. parts i like the director's cut better it it really does depend if if the two could have coalesced it would have been an even better movie like one thing tony k outright said on camera there was this documentary called Who is Alan Smithy, where Tony Kay talked about a lot of the problems with American History X. He outright said Edward Norton was in love with himself and made sure when he was cutting scenes for time, it was always someone else's scenes that got <laughs> cut. That's why you do not give the lead actor editing control. Never, never. No, I, I made that mistake once. No, 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 don't do that. And if you remember 1995 Scarlet Letter, where Demi Moore was so in love with herself at the time because she was hot shit again all of a sudden. 
And that movie was doomed from the get-go. But she came along, and it's it was this movie based on the classic novel. And she's like, you know what? We're going to update this and make this about the new wave of feminism. And would constantly butt heads with the director, were changing lines, would do her, like, would do her scenes, but said her own words that she it's like that's not what this was on the paper here and finally when you know the movie came together it was this mess and when she was on one of the talk shows uh and they were asking about the movie she was like well not that many people have read the book anyway so if if we were to do it the way that they did it then uh, people wouldn't understand it and it's like um you do realize that this book was required reading in like so for most of us, for most of us. But then yeah, it was, you, it was got... required reading, and I made the mistake of watching that movie instead of reading the book. And yeah, I, I kind of failed because of that. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> but but then but then you even have actors that aren't that big that try to do that. Go back and listen to the interview with Uwe Boll. Alex Brad and I did. He outright says, outside of the Michael Madsen issues where he couldn't remember his lines because he was drunk and crying. But Michelle Rodriguez kept, I, I, I think I've got a better take on this. And he's like, but Michelle, then if we do your now made up dialogue, it won't mesh with the insert shots or the reverses of the other actors. And she's like, yeah, 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 but this works better. And Uwe's like, stop doing this. Just read the damn script. Well, I think in her case, she was looking at it like this was guerrilla filmmaking because they were doing everything in one or two takes uh, everything was just done. All right, quick, we're going to get, you know, 20 scenes done today. Just so I think that she just was like, ah, screw it. I'll just wing it. And I mean, but didn't he? I mean, he, he has brought her back, hasn't he? I don't think he used Rodriguez. No, he never used Rodriguez. I, again. I don't think I, he used her after the first film. And then yeah. on the second Blood Rain, he accidentally burned down the entire authentic set that they built. They built an entire Western town and somebody left a heater on in one of the sheds overnight and they ended up burning the entire thing down. Oops, look at Stallone with Judge Dredd. Danny Cannon had the film taken away from him. Stallone was rewriting scenes on a daily basis. He said literally the crew, they didn't look at him as Danny as Danny Cannon to know what to do, that Stallone was armchair directing the movie. And then when it failed, it's Danny Cannon's fault. You know what, if I'd known what Danny Cannon's plan for that movie was going to be, you know, but still... They Danny Cannon's version sounded really good, man. The problem is we never saw it. But the studio wanted Sylvester Stallone, and the studio wanted Sylvester Stallone's version of that movie, so that's kind of like what they were asking for anyway. I still uh, I still do genuinely enjoy the original Judge Dredd. Now, the most recent, uh, what, 2012 Dredd is the Judge Dredd movie that should have always been. But in 1995 that movie was not possible. So the version that we got in 95 with Stallone, aside from him taking off the helmet, I still think it's a really good movie. Even with Rob Schneider, even with... The uh, art, the artificial love story with, with Judge Hershey, with ignoring everything in the comic books, with Dread making one-liners and gay jokes and no... As a fan of the comic, that got nothing outside of the visuals right. It was good. I like, I mean, they, they did the visuals. They absolutely nailed. They, I, I went over it extensively in my review last year. I think it was, Horrible. um, 
the visuals and everything were good. And I mean, that thing had such a troubled production to go ahead to finally get into production anyway. Having it finally made is a feat unto itself. Yes, it sucks that Stallone was being such a, a dick during uh, the pr- production that he had it more or less taken away from Canon, who was just kind of there, you know, saying action and cut. In the end, I think it's a case of despite all the problems, it still ended up being a good movie. Now, I know I'm in the minority because there are so many people that hate the film and there are so many people that hate the film. And the first thing they say is, oh, he took the helmet off. And the majority of these people have never even read a freaking Judge Dredd comic. So the majority they, of these people don't probably realize that for the first three issues, Judge Dredd was black, too. I didn't even know that. Yeah, he, the, that's, he, that's news to me. Yeah, he was black for the first three issues, and then he was actually changed to white by mistake. It was just a coloring issue with issue four. What about when, like you said, Danny Cannon just got to yell cut in action? When the producer is a director himself, and they have such contrasting directing styles that it makes the movie schizophrenic at the end, like Poltergeist. There are scenes in that movie where you go, yeah, Toby Hooper directed this. And there are other scenes where you go, yeah, Spielberg directed this. What about something like that? Because officially, Toby Hooper directed all of Poltergeist. Most of the cast and crew say whenever Spielberg was on set, Spielberg was even yelling cut in action, that Spielberg was directing this and Toby was just sitting in the back smoking a cigar looking pissed off. I have always considered Poltergeist to be a Steven Spielberg movie. I mean, there is so little of Toby Hooper in that movie that everything in there looks like a... Steven Spielberg movie, save for maybe one or two scenes. I know why Toby Hooper's name is still on that, because of restrictions from the DGA that said Spielberg could only direct X amount of movies. That's why Toby Hooper's name is still on it. When you've got two very talented and very headstrong directors like that that are going to be on set together, they're going to butt heads, and one is going to think that they can do it better than the other, and in the case of Hooper and Spielberg, Spielberg, being the bigger fish in the pond, is just going to take over. Well, this should be done this way, so we should you know, take over and do it this way. And kind of a shame, but in the end, that's a case of where Poltergeist is one of my all-time favorite movies, so even though there was you know a lot of them headbutting on set, it didn't actually affect the end product. I think that the end product still came out and is an incredible film. To end this episode, the seemingly prophetic post-apocalyptic disasters, especially if Kevin Costner is attached to it, like The Postman and Waterworld. Waterworld was doomed from the get-go. Postman was just a stupid idea to begin with. What about that when you know from day one you need to rethink this whole thing. But the studio, because in both cases, the studio just kept throwing money at it, going, here's more money, fix it. That's all they said in the case of Waterworld. Here's more money, fix it. Without telling you what to do. How is that supposed to make a good end product? Well, Waterworld would have come in a lot closer to budget if they would have listened to their effects guys and built the entire floating city on a set instead of in the middle of the frickin' uh, ocean during, uh, I believe, typhoon season. <laughs> yeah, it was either hurricane season or typhoon season. It's either yeah. hurricane, ta- and it, it sank, what, like eight times? And every time it sank, they had to spend however many millions of dollars dredging it up. And it's like when they could have just shot it in a studio and 
no one would have been any of the wiser. It, it was just ridiculous, the fact that they, they did that. So, I mean, that right there cost them uh, an arm and a leg of the production. So uh, it, I, I think it's just a case of they fell in love with the idea of making the most expensive movie ever at the time. And unfortunately, it kind of set a precedence because after that, like there wasn't really a $200 million movie up to that point. And then it got to the point of where $200 million movies became like the norm. And then now we're up to what, 300, well, I think, uh, I think Oz, the great and powerful was like $350 million, something like Waterworld. It's just uh, a case of they were trying to make this really big, grandiose movie and the producers just kept throwing money at it thinking it'd fix it and they more or less did because the movie while it took a while it still ended up finally making its money back and turning a profit but uh it it took a lot longer than its theatrical run i don't think producers throwing money at the solution is ever the problem that they should plan this stuff out beforehand as cecil said way earlier that they should focus more on pre-production and what they're going to do to get it done and with Hollywood, there's so much other stuff, as we talked before last episode about the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, what with the unions and whatnot, that also costs a lot of money to, to work in those conditions. That Hollywood, if they want to make good movies, they need to re-examine the way they do business currently. Did you just say producers throwing money at the solution is not the problem? I think he did, actually. I, that's what I, I heard. <laughs> But then in the case of Waterworld, you also had its critical drubbing that could have been avoided as well. The director's cut is only 40 minutes longer and makes so much more sense that maybe the film would have made more money if you wouldn't have cut out all the things that had audiences going, wait a minute, who are they? Wait a minute, why is this happening? What is going on? Maybe if you'd left all those in the film it might have done better theatrically, huh? Possibly. I mean, uh, because uh, audiences were, at the time, listening to all these things saying, oh, you know, it's the biggest movie ever made, it was so expensive, da, da, da. And then it would make sense that the biggest movie ever made or the most expensive movie ever made would be three hours long or whatever, because that way you'd feel like you were, you know, getting this really big production. And it is... A good, I think it's a cool movie. It's basically Mad Max on water, but I enjoy it. They should have left it as long as it was. I think it, this was a case of they wanted to cut it shorter because like that other movie, they wanted to have it play you know, more times during the day because they were really worried about making their money back at that point. So they were more focused, <laughs> ironically, that in the end... They wanted to get their money back, so they were no longer worried about if the movie was good or not. They just wanted to make sure that they were going to get their money back. So it's it's a shame because um, when people look back on it, they only remember the disaster of it. They don't. I mean, not that it's a great well, movie. Especially, that needs beca to... especially because the director's cut has never been officially released. It, mm -hmm. It's it's the cut that's shown on TV. The cut that's shown on TV is nearly three hours long without commercials. That's the director's version. All the one on, ones that are on video and DVD are the theatrical cut. So it's almost like they're still trying to hide the better version of the film somehow. Well, at least it's out there in you know one way or another. I mean, how many movies are just a disaster and they have the phrase that I hate where people, oh, plot hole's so big you could drive a truck through it. 
the the movie in and of itself, if the full version was released, you would see that those plot holes don't exist. It was just that Prometheus. I, uh, I still like Prometheus. I like Prometheus too. <laughs> most of the plot holes that were pointed out by most critics mm-hmm. are deleted scenes. There are a lot of plot holes in the movie that don't exist, though, that people don't seem to understand. Probably see this director's cut. I watched it in theaters and have made a point to not watch it since, since I didn't much appreciate the movie. It's almost 40 minutes longer, and it's 40 minutes that really helps the film. So, Alex, you are a behind-the-scenes disaster for this show. Where can people find you? Well, that's kind of mean. They can find me at geekjuicemedia.com. You can find me at uh, goodbadflix.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. Speaking of incestuous, geekjuicemedia.com as well, as well as 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a good night, guys.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.